Hey there, Warlords of History listeners. I'm your host, Mark Pimenta. And before we nosedive into the episode, part three of our series on Scipio Africanus, I'd like to take a moment to introduce you to an exceptional podcast that's taking the skies by storm called So There I Was, hosted by two former Marine pilots, Fig and Repeat sharing their first-hand accounts of thrilling flying experiences that'll have you on the edge of your seat, all delivered in a highly engaging yet relaxed and conversational tone, bringing you unparalleled aviation knowledge and tales from recent history, while joined by captivating guests with incredible stories. You'll hear about heart-pumping moments in the cockpit, combat missions, hilarious screw-ups during flights, insane hijinks off-duty, and the challenges pilots routinely face. Like in episode 45, one of my favorites, where the 98-year-old Captain Royce Williams recounts the day in 1952 that he shot down four Russian MiG-15s solo, winning the Navy Cross for it 70 years later. So get ready for takeoff, strap in, recline your seat, and enjoy the ride with so There I Was. Subscribe today at SoThereIWas.us. It's how all great aviation tales begin. In late June 217 BC, the 19-year-old Publius Cornelius Scipio, like he did every morning, stepped out from his home immediately feeling the pleasant warmth of the summer sun on his skin, as he began heading in the direction of the Temple of Jupiter. A fleeting moment of pleasure, tainted, quickly overshadowed by the growing sense of unease felt in the atmosphere around him, and that a very different mood had overtaken his city. Tense, nervous, edging in on panic reflective of the streets that he found much more crowded than usual. But not with the typical bustling of activity, the masses collecting at the markets and other public venues going about their daily business. Instead, great throngs of people urgently rushing off to the northernmost gates of the city, hurrying past Scipio as he continued on through Rome's lanes and pathways, walking with his customary calm self-composure, eventually coming upon the forum, ringed by temples and governmental buildings that he found unusually bare of people. His keen eyes taking it all in, and knowing why, as he glanced to the main speaking platform in the forum, from which the praetor, Marcus Pomponius, just days passed, had made the simple but grim pronouncement, we have been defeated in a great battle, confirming the stream of deeply unsettling rumors that had begun flooding into and spreading throughout Rome, in reference to the utter disaster that had befallen the legions at the recently fought Battle of Lake Trasimene on June 21st, 217 BC. Yet another heavy battle loss, the third in a row handed down by the Carthaginian general Hannibal, following his comprehensive victories at Tachinus and the Trebia, that resulted in the Republic losing control of Cisalpine Gaul. Events that the young Scipio 
had borne witness to firsthand, fought through, and had been forced to retreat from, having since returned to Rome several months ago, leading to this moment while nearing the steps to the Temple of Jupiter, watching as hordes of citizens continued to descend en masse to the northern gates of the Servian walls, where the few surviving troops of what had once been a 25,000 strong Roman army had begun straggling back to the city, remarkably few. Every now and again, small groups of Roman soldiers arriving in a dismal condition, wounded, bloodied, and with feverish eyes filled with terror, looking for solace and safety, only to be met by frantic crowds of citizens at the gates, desperately hoping to see or implore any of the survivors they recognized for news of their loved ones, fathers, husbands, and sons that had marched off to war, never to return, heightening the sense of panic that was closing its fingers around Rome, amidst the growing realization that the legions at Lake Trasimene had been annihilated almost entirely, proving true the many disturbing omens being increasingly seen and reported on from all around the Italian peninsula, that the gods, for some reason, were greatly displeased with the people of Rome, but that, above all, the greatest source of distress, beyond even the tragic loss of another Roman army, was that Hannibal and his 50,000-plus Carthaginian troops were now only a mere 150 kilometers away from Rome, with Scipio and all those in Rome acutely aware that nothing was standing in the way of Hannibal and their city. Welcome to the Warlords of History podcast. I'm your host, Mark Pimenta. And to part three of our series, following the lifetime of Scipio Africanus, who, as we'll learn about in this episode, right from the onset of his military career, aligning with the onset of the Second Punic War, had a front row seat to what was more and more appearing to be the beginning of the end to the Roman Republic's run of dominance in Italy. Pushed into a sharp downward spiral by a reinvigorated Carthaginian Empire, spearheaded by none other than its brilliant general, Hannibal Barca. Having marched his army all the way from Spain to crash through the Alps into northern Italy and kick off his invasion by soundly defeating the Romans at the Battle of Tacinus in November 218 BC, where Scipio would heroically jump into the battle to save his father's life. But that ultimately disrupted Rome's tenuous hold on authority within a highly destabilized region, having been wrestling with the Gallic tribes for control of Cisalpine Gaul for more than a decade in the lead-up to Hannibal's arrival. And in the effort to reverse the impact of Tacinus and regain their footing in the Po Valley, the Roman Senate promptly sending north a 40,000-strong army under Tiberius Sempronius Longus. With their confidence remaining high, being that, despite the initial setback, since the force at Tacinus, led by Scipio's father, Scipio Sr., had been absent of their best troops 
the core strength of its legions, their famed heavy infantry, the configuration of which we'll examine along with how the legions were armed and fought. This had been the primary means through which the Roman Republic had won its hegemony over Italy, exhibiting exceptionally fierce, toe-to-toe punching power that no adversaries had been able to withstand. Granted, none of their previous adversaries ever had a commander like Hannibal, who goaded Sempronius into committing his legions to battle under terrible circumstances at the Battle of the Trebia in late December 218 BC, which we'll dissect in detail, along with how Hannibal used the geography and weather in combination with brilliant ploys as a part of his overall tactical approach to crush the Roman army. Subsequently causing Rome to lose control of and largely abandon the region, sending Scipio and his father retreating southwards. Whereas for Hannibal, over the winter into the spring of 217 BC, triggering a surge of Gallic support, swaying nearly all of the tribes of the Po Valley to his side, and the Carthaginian army as a result, almost doubling in size to over 60,000 coinciding with the timing of Scipio's return to Rome, arriving to find his city abuzz in urgent preparations, raising new armies to block Hannibal from gaining entrance into central Italy. However, also finding overall public sentiment marred by a pessimistic religious fervor, looking to the supernatural to understand the source of their sudden misfortune, which will take us into the realm of Roman religion how the Romans of the time, trying to make sense of what was happening, becoming convinced that they had somehow lost the favor of the gods, interpreted through a series of dark omens emerging out of the natural world, predicting ominous times ahead that would unfold in a very real and horrifying fashion through yet another Roman military disaster at the Battle of Lake Trasimene in late June 217 BC, and Scipio thus witnessing the people of Rome cascade into a fear-fueled panic. However, before we get into all of this, it's time for a shout-out, as I have the great pleasure of welcoming Steve Verdoliva as the newest member into the ranks of the Warlords of History Immortals. And because this episode corresponds with the new year, just a quick update that, as promised, 10% of the monthly listener contributions for 2023 has been committed to what I believe to be a great cause, supplying people from impoverished nations around the world with donations of things like chickens and beehives, along with the training and education to care for these life-improving means, giving them things like eggs and honey to both feed themselves and start businesses to help pull them out of poverty. A huge thank you to all the immortals for supporting the podcast through the Warlords of History Patreon page and for helping us together make the world a little better of a place. Alright, let's get to it. Now, quick reminder here that this episode marks part 3 of our ongoing series on Scipio Africanus. So, if you haven't had the chance to listen to parts 1 and 2 as of yet, 
you may want to start there first. But in any event, in order to get everything organized in our minds, here's a brief summary of what we covered in the last episode. Beginning with the Roman Republic's push into Cisalpine Gaul in northern Italy throughout the 220s BC, warring against and defeating many of the Gallic tribes therein, leaving them seething in discontent, especially concerned by the fortified Roman colonies popping up in the Po Valley, including Placentia and Cremona, founded in early 218 BC, precipitating attacks on these settlements by the Boii and Insubres tribes, which, unbeknownst to the Romans, were at least in part motivated by Hannibal's promises of a Carthaginian-led alliance against Rome. Carthage, the Roman Republic's formidable adversary of the First Punic War, ended in 241 BC, with Rome's breaking of Carthaginian naval dominance over the western Mediterranean, climbing to that perch themselves, enabling them to impose a humiliating peace treaty upon their defeated foe. That added to the Carthaginian Empire falling into a dreadful state in economic turmoil, which cascaded into civil war in North Africa. However, with Carthage's fortunes soon reversed, headlined by a phenomenal campaign and recovery centered in the Iberian Peninsula, engineered by Hamilcar Barca, that in just a few decades after the First Punic War, financed by the incredibly rich silver mines to be found in southeastern Spain, this enabled the Carthaginians to assemble a large professional army, becoming stronger than ever before. And while during this time, although aware of Carthage's increased activity in Hispania, the Roman Senate nonetheless continued to direct its legions north into Cisalpine Gaul and across the Adriatic along the Illyrian coastline, focusing on these regions to expand their footprint, habitually underestimating the scope of the Carthaginian revival, not comprehending the extent of their newfound military power. That in 221 BC was placed into the hands of Hamilcar's 26-year-old son, Hannibal, who, since the tender age of 10, after taking a solemn oath of eternal hatred to Rome, had been trained by his father, on how to win battles and how to lead, resulting in Hannibal evolving into what many consider a military genius, certainly a battlefield tactician of unrivaled quality, and that upon taking the helm of Carthaginian Spain, besieged and brutally sacked the Roman allied city of Saguntum, which led to Rome's declaration of war in late 219 BC, the beginning of the Second Punic War. However, with the Roman Republic taking somewhat of a lackadaisical approach to the conflict, believing Carthage only capable of waging a defensive war, and soon left shocked by what was to come, a Carthaginian land invasion, Hannibal's unbelievably strenuous and impressive 1,500-kilometer march, starting from New Carthage in southeastern Spain, leading his army over the Pyrenees Mountains, through Gaul, before traversing the Alps mountain range to land in northern Italy in late October 218 BC, shortly followed by his first clash with the Romans at the Battle of Ticinus. A Roman force under the command of Scipio's father, Scipio Sr., 
and R. Scipio, then 18 years old, bearing witness to Hannibal's incredible battlefield prowess, handing the Romans a stinging defeat, and rendering Scipio Sr. gravely wounded, about to be captured or killed, only prevented by the last-minute heroics of his son, who charged into the battle to save his father's life. Bringing us to where we left everything off in Part 2, in early November 218 BC, with Hannibal, days after the Battle of Tachinus, boldly leading the Carthaginian army to set up their encampment just a few kilometers away, across on the western bank of the Trebia River, right in view of the Roman colony of Placentia, where Scipio Sr., his son, and the remnants of his army had retreated to. The total forces under Scipio Sr.'s command now estimated to be around six to 7,000 troops, the bulk of which were stationed at Placentia, but with some of the group protecting Cremona as well. So, where exactly was our Scipio at this time? What was he doing? In full transparency, historical accounts are frustratingly silent on Scipio's whereabouts through the next events, until he pops back onto our radar later in 217-216, back in Rome. Which begs the question, understanding the quickly degrading situation in the Po Valley, did Scipio Sr. promptly send his son to Rome for his safekeeping at this point? While plausible, I tend to doubt this notion, and understanding the growing dangers surrounding them, I'm convinced that Scipio Sr. would have kept his son close at his side, mainly because Hannibal's forces were now in firm control of the lands around the colonies, with Carthaginian foragers highly active around Placentia. Foraging for resources, yes, but also any Romans they could get their hands on, notably high-value Roman patricians and officials that they could imprison and use as bargaining chips. And, let's face it, among the Roman aristocracy, knowing what we now know of their guiding virtues, like virtus and dignitas, obsessed with personal and familial honor and glory, the optics of rushing Scipio off to safety in the face of difficult times would have not been a good look for the Cornelii Scipionis, a dishonorable action. Not to mention that Scipio Sr. did not have the military numbers to spare for the sizable guard that would have been required to do so. A force, not only demoralized, but also insufficient for sallying out to engage the nearby Carthaginian army, which Hannibal had anticipated, along with being a wise calculation, understanding that, in marching his army and setting up his encampment, right at the Roman doorstep. This overt challenge to fight was one that the Romans, at least in the short term, couldn't hope to meet, thereby casting light on their weakness and vulnerability. But perhaps even more importantly, the projection of Carthaginian superiority. A propaganda play intended to sway the Gallic tribes that inhabited the region to his side adding to the momentum of his recent win at Tachinus. Granted, the Battle of Tachinus had not been a full-on pitched battle, described by some historians more so as a large skirmish, and the Carthaginians had yet to encounter 
Rome's famed heavy infantry in the field. So, while not yet receiving a full gale wind of Gallic support, at least some of the tribes began answering Hannibal's call, notably his most ardent allies, the Boii and the Insubres, offering up additional supplies and troops. And remember towards the end of the last episode, when Scipio at Placentia, in a charismatic flair, declined the honor of a civic crown for having saved his father at Tachinus? Well, according to some accounts, that very night, in the Roman military camp positioned close to Placentia, since the colony wasn't large enough to accommodate all their numbers, treachery arose from within. When, according to the ancient Greek historian Polybius, 2200 Roman allied Celtic warriors, after letting the greater part of the night go by, armed themselves before the morning watch and fell upon the Romans who were encamped nearest to them, killing and wounding many, before cutting off the heads of the slain, bringing their grisly trophies to Hannibal and offering themselves in service to the Carthaginian general, who received them in friendship, honoring their actions. Resulting in Scipio Sr. the next day, in addition to doing his best to strengthen the defenses and garrisons of Placentia and Cremona, ordering his military camp moved to somewhere around 5 kilometers to the south of Placentia, where the plains of the Po Valley start giving way to the foothills of the northern Apennine Mountains, the range that cuts through the center length of the Italian peninsula. Close enough to Placentia that he could swiftly come to their aid if attacked, but wisely, with their new encampment constructed on high ground, difficult for Hannibal to access with cavalry and larger numbers of troops. Certainly, the young Scipio would have been learning a lot during these weeks, from his father, watching him maneuver within an increasingly desperate situation. Though, by the same token, probably finding it hard not to admire the effectiveness of Hannibal's political posturing, winning over new allies. Perhaps this leaving a definitive imprint on Scipio, since as we'll find out much later on in future episodes, he became uniquely skilled at winning over former foes to fight under his and Roman leadership. Nonetheless, it was at this new and much more defensible Roman fort that Scipio and his father held their ground, awaiting the arrival of Scipio Sr.'s co-consul, Tiberius Sempronius Longus, and the legions that he was bringing north, all the way from Sicily, having immediately departed from there in mid-November, at the urging of the Roman Senate. This, while Hannibal's ongoing presence continued to tip the scales, greatly upsetting the balance of power in the region evidenced by another surprising setback that unfolded in early December, when at Clastidium, as referenced by Patrick Hunt in his book Hannibal, a major fortified grain depot located 50 kilometers due west from Placentia that held the legion's winter provisions. Hannibal's forces were just about to attack the site when something very unexpected happened. The commander and garrison protecting Clastidium a Roman allied force from southern Italy, opened the gates to the Carthaginians and defected to Hannibal's cause. Which, 
along with the Gauls filtering in to join Hannibal, increased his army's count from the 26,000 that made it through the Alps to about 38,000 by late December, while also solidifying the idea for Hannibal, given the relative ease by which it was done so far, that his overarching strategy for his whole Italian campaign, as mentioned in the last episode, focused on winning over Roman allies to support Carthage instead, was indeed the right one. Another important feature of which was aiming to crush the armies of the res publica on the field of battle, breaking their image of dominance, while doing so under the claim of being a liberator, giving Roman allies their sovereignty back in full, in the ultimate aim of isolating Rome politically, depriving it of its allies and therefore the deep pool of manpower that it depended on for its legions. But in order for this to work, Hannibal needed to keep on winning battles, keep on proving out Roman weakness. With the next opportunity for this, soon appearing with the arrival of Sempronius and his legions, having sailed off from Sicily in mid-November, disembarking at the port of Ostia near Rome, then at a furious pace marched his armies through the Eternal City north to the Po Valley to link up with Scipio Sr. in late December 218, a distance of just over 1,000 kilometers, covered in an impressive 40 days, of course helped greatly by Rome's well-built network of roads. With Sempronius along the way, adding to the three or four legions that he originally had with him, by pulling available troops from Rome and their Italian allies, including the few Gallic allies still loyal to Rome, such as the Senomani, once he reached Cisalpine Gaul, where Scipio Sr., due to his grievous wound, recovering but unable to lead, handed over command to Sempronius. Over the total Roman fighting strength in the region, sitting now at just over 40,000 soldiers, underscored by an important difference from the force that had, a month prior under Scipio Sr., been soundly defeated by Hannibal at Tacinus. Since that group had been absent of Rome's best units, their heavy infantry, that had been responsible for winning the res publica's dominance over almost the entirety of the Italian peninsula up until that point in time. In fact, so confident were the Romans in the superiority of their infantry that from Polybius we come to learn that, when Sempronius and his legions had traveled through Rome, the prevailing belief was that they only had to show themselves to the Carthaginians and the battle would be decided. Now, in the last episode, we talked about the fascinating blend of units that made up Hannibal's army, taken from all across the Carthaginian Empire including heavy infantry and cavalry from Carthage and Libya, medium and light infantry and horsemen from Hispania, the exceptional Numidian light cavalry from the area of what is today Algeria, Balearic island slingers and his war elephants, more recently injected with new blood from the Gallic warriors beginning to join in, eager for the opportunity to erase the Roman presence from their lands. An army that Barry Strauss in his book Masters of Command points out as a varied mix of men and abilities, but with one of Hannibal's greatest achievements being 
turning them into a cohesive whole. Which I believe to be a pretty important insight. Understanding that, while each unit possessed unique fighting styles, skills, and specializations, whereas in the hands of a lesser general, this would have certainly posed a problem. Hannibal keenly understood how to use them together, as if conducting a symphony orchestra, a deadly one at that, to blunt their respective weaknesses and maximize their strengths in battle, while also giving him many options in his toolbox, depending on what the geography and situation called for. But what exactly did the army of the Roman Republic of this era look like? How did they fight? Let's spend some time to get into this now, because in contrast to the Carthaginian army, the legions of Rome at this time were much more narrowly defined in terms of their structure and unit types, placing a great deal of emphasis on its near impenetrable frontal punching power, the crushing weight delivered by its heavy infantry. Roman battle strategy, for the most part, never about finesse, and arguably somewhat lacking, especially depending on the person who was leading them, but undeniably effective, proven time and time again, the primary means by which Rome historically, as covered in part one, had steamrolled over its Italian adversaries to emerge as hegemon of the Italian peninsula, while seeing regular evolution and refinement along the way. Through the 5th and 4th centuries BC, from that of Greek-style hoplites, heavily armored spear and shield-wielding infantrymen, during set-piece battles deployed in phalanx formations, large blocks of men tightly packed, presenting shield walls and spears pointing outwards, to the more versatile configuration that became favored and adopted towards the late 4th and early 3rd century BC that remained in use during the time of the Second Punic War, characterized by the term, the Manipular Legion. But of course, as always, centered around heavily armed and armored infantry. The normal size of a legion being approximately 4,500 troops, 3,000 of which were heavy infantry, subdivided into three distinctive types, the Hastati, Principe, and Triarii. The main criteria for participation in each group largely predicated on social class and wealth, since Roman citizens were required to pay for their own equipment, though age and military experience also played a role in determining their placement. Meaning that, although the exact configuration remains disputed, for the most part, the poorest, youngest, and least experienced troops would be in the front, while the richest, oldest, and most experienced veterans were placed behind. And with each infantry type organized into three successive lines when in battle formation, the first line being the Hastati, wearing a small bronze breastplate protecting the chest, greaves for the legs, an open-faced helmet, and a large rectangular shield that covered their body from chin to knee. Armed with a heavy javelin, called the Pilum, and a short sword for close combat, the famous Gladius. Followed by the second line, where the Principe would be found, armed and armored in a fashion similar to that of the Hastati, but with much better quality armor, leather, 
accentuated by a full bronze cuirass, protecting the front and back of their torso. And then the third line made up of the triarii, the oldest soldiers and the last remnant of the hoplite style troops in the Roman army. More elaborately armored like the principe, sometimes bearing chainmail coats as well, with the exception that their primary weapon was a long pike and the gladius used as a backup. The name Manipular Legion coming from the word manipul, or manipulus in Latin, meaning handful, as in handfuls of soldiers, in reference to each line of infantrymen. Let's take the Hastati for example, being made up of smaller groups of fighting units called manipuls, blocks of 120 men organized three ranks deep with spaces in between these maniples, enabling these handfuls to advance or withdraw independently of one another. Behind the Hastati line, the maniples of the Principe, facing the gaps of the line in front of them, thus producing what is often described as the Roman checkerboard formation. According to Polybius, each legion consisting of 10 maniples of 120 Hastati soldiers, 10 maniples of 120 Principe, and 10 maniples of 60 Triarii, bringing us to that total figure of 3,000 heavy infantry. Supported by 1,200 Belites, the light infantry that we were introduced to in the last episode, consisting of the poorest Roman citizens able to participate in the army, unable to afford any armor beyond a shield, wielding light-throwing javelins. Velites, typically used at the beginning of battles, casting their javelins into the ranks of their enemies and then moved to the back as a reserve force, if needed resorting to their gladius once their missiles were depleted. And finally, the Equites, the Roman knights, 300 heavy cavalry that only the aristocratic class, like the patricians, could afford to take part in. Well protected with a cuirass, chainmail or segmented plate armor, a helmet, and because mounted, possessing a smaller shield than what their infantry comrades were using. Armed with a long thrusting spear or lance, and a longer sword than the gladius, called the spatha. Heavy horsemen, often positioned to protect the flanks of the legions, also used for shock charges to break up enemy formations and typically followed, contrary to popular belief, by dismounting to fight when in battle. The horses used more so as a conveyance to quickly transport them to wherever they were needed on the battlefield. However, when taking a step back to look at this configuration holistically, being that so much emphasis was placed on heavy infantry, accounting for two-thirds of the troops in a legion, we can readily see how this design enabled the armies of the Roman Republic to deliver withering frontal assaults that few adversaries could stand up to. A notion that Hannibal too would have undoubtedly been aware of, and although not yet having encountered them in the field of battle, gaining insight into the Roman way of fighting long before invading northern Italy, by carefully studying their battle tactics, it's been reasoned by some historians by absorbing any and all available literature concerning Rome's previous conflicts, 
such as in the Pyrrhic War and the First Punic War, certainly augmented by the lessons bestowed upon him from elder Carthaginian veterans and commanders that had firsthand faced the legions in land battles during the First Punic War. None more important than his father, Hamilcar, who defeated every Roman force he encountered during his time in Sicily. And lastly, his understanding of the Roman approach to warfare, further aided by a lesser recognized feature of Hannibal's leadership, his phenomenal network of intelligence gathering, through the extensive use of scouts and spies. As emphasized by Patrick Hunt, when he says, while nearly all commentators praise or admire Hannibal's military tactics, many fail to appreciate his superb use of intelligence gathering and espionage that helped to secure his victories, setting a precedent for the ancient world. An idea also evidenced by ancient historians. Among several examples, Polybius mentioning, on the eve of the next major battle, the Battle of the Trebia, Celtic spies operating from within the Roman military camps, while the ancient Roman historian Livy points to a spy who had operated out of Rome for two years, feeding the Carthaginians intel, before caught and punished by having his hands cut off. The main takeaway here, that information gathering and maintaining a constant flow of intelligence was fundamental to Hannibal's brilliant manner of waging war making exceptional use of scouts, spies, and informants to gain insights on things like travel routes, potential ambush sites, the makeup and count of opposing military forces coming his way, and even the personalities and motivations of their commanders. With Hannibal reassembling all these informational puzzle pieces to gain a firm understanding of the Roman weaknesses in a given situation weaknesses that he could exploit, weaving this knowledge into his strategic plans and tactical approach. Better explaining his uncanny ability, as we'll see in this and the next episode, to deliver incredible victories, becoming the source of Rome's greatest existential threat. Provided that he could draw them into battle under the right conditions, on battlegrounds that he had pre-selected, and, luckily for Hannibal, it was Sempronius that was now in charge of the 40,000 Roman troops based just south of Placentia. Because it seems that Hannibal had obtained a good read of Sempronius's character and motivations, an ambitious politician who was driven by an urgent need to score a victory as the means to cement his political future and ongoing relevance. Because, you see, Although elected as consul for 218 BC alongside Scipio Sr., Sempronius had spent the bulk of the year stationed in Sicily, without having accomplished much, beyond some small successful naval raids on the Carthaginian-held island of what is today Malta, and his time in office for making a greater impact was quickly running out. Being that, the transition of consular powers, Imperium, into the hands of the new consuls elected for 217 BC was looming. A transition that would take place in Rome on the Ides of March, March 15th, when the newly elected consuls assumed their duties and responsibilities, 
and the outgoing consuls who had served the previous year officially stepped down. Accordingly, when Sempronius and his troops arrived in northern Italy in late December, it became immediately clear that he was hungry for a fight. Because winning a deciding battle here, stopping the Carthaginian invasion, doing what Scipio Sr. had been unable to do, would have all but assured his future re-election in the coming years, while also winning glory for him and his house. A motivation that Hannibal understood and planned to leverage, twisting Sempronius's urgency into a battle fought under unfavorable conditions for the legions. A deep concern, apparently, also held by Scipio Sr., who, having fought and lost to Hannibal over a month prior, receiving not only his grievous wound, but also key lessons from the encounter, these left a deep impression on him, heightening his respect for Hannibal and his forces. And I can imagine, while waiting for Sempronius's arrival, probably having dissected the situation with Scipio, breaking down what had gone wrong at Tachinus, and what should happen next, how to address the problems at hand. And whereas Scipio Sr. was a seasoned commander, keenly understanding of military matters, recognizing the need for a cautious approach, Sempronius, as mentioned, was more of an ambitious politician, full of fire and vigor. Alluding to, as described by Livy, a sharp dispute that would erupt between the co-consuls upon Sempronius's arrival, Amidst the cold, howling winds and snow of late December 218 BC at the Roman encampment just south of Placentia, in a meeting of the high Roman command taking place at Scipio Sr.'s tent, where he was recovering from his wound, that I suspect the young Scipio would have attended, or if not, heard about shortly thereafter. Where? After handing command over all the forces to Sempronius, Scipio Sr. advised him to postpone meeting Hannibal in a pitched battle, which led to an argument between the consuls. According to Robert Garland in his book Hannibal, Scipio Sr.'s rationale for the delay summed up by the following two main points. One, that the majority of Sempronius's troops had seen little to no action so far and could use with more training over the winter to get them into fighting shape, whereas the core of the Carthaginian army was laden with battle-hardened veterans that had fought together for years in Spain, also in numerous battles and skirmishes just to get into northern Italy. And two, that the Gallic tribes of the Po Valley were notoriously fickle, meaning that if Rome stayed on the defensive, Keeping the Carthaginians inactive and from achieving anything of significance, Hannibal's newfound support might soon dry up. Though, to this, I would add a third important point, that the frenzied pace by which Sempronius had marched his forces north had left them exhausted, needing time to recuperate. However, with all of this reasoning gruffly brushed aside by Sempronius, who, according to Livy, responded to Scipio Sr., saying that he was sick in spirit rather than in body, and the recollection of his wound made him dread a battle. 
Why indeed should they further postpone the conflict or waste time? What third consul, what other army were they waiting for? Clearly, Sempronius had convinced himself of the need for immediate action. Also motivated by wanting to fight before Scipio Sr. recovered enough to take the field alongside him, not having to share the glory for their expected victory. And if any doubts remained as to the timing, they were soon erased completely when shortly after his arrival, Hannibal whetted Sempronius's appetite with about 2,000 Carthaginian skirmishers that ventured in to raid the lands near Placentia, to which Sempronius promptly responded by sending several thousand Roman troops to repulse the skirmishers, solidifying Sempronius's commitment to a decisive pitched battle. Since this short but fierce skirmish quickly ended with the Carthaginians seeing the worst of the engagement, retreating back to their camp. The camp. As mentioned earlier, that Hannibal had set up in the broad plain, a few kilometers west of the Trebia River, where across the waterway on its eastern bank stood Placentia, and Scipio Sr.'s and Sempronius's Roman encampments about five kilometers to the south of the colony, which I'll be sure to include some maps and visuals on the Warlords of History website to help put all of this into perspective. In terms of the site that would give the next major battle its name, fought on December 22nd or the 23rd in 218 BC, the Battle of the Trebia, a day or two after the aforementioned skirmish. Hannibal's total forces, bolstered by the recent Gallic additions, totaling around 38,000, broken down to 28,000 infantry, 20,000 heavy and 8,000 light, 10,000 cavalry, and 37 war elephants. Versus the Roman army, 40,000 strong led by Sempronius, made up of 30,000 heavy infantry, 6,000 light infantry velites, and 4,000 cavalry. However, with the timing and terms of the first set-piece pitched battle, all determined by Hannibal, who would proceed to use Rome's typical tactical approach and the fiery motivation of its commander against itself, in combination with the geography and even the wintry weather, to win a monumental victory. By unleashing a series of ingenious ploys, aided by the day of the impending engagement, being noted for its blustery cold, snowy, and sleeting conditions. Perfect for what Hannibal had in mind. The night before the battle, ordering his troops to bed early, to make sure that they were well rested for what lay ahead. Then, in the early morning, before the sun had risen on the day of the battle, feeding his troops a hearty breakfast, but also, interestingly, commanding them to slather themselves and their horses down with animal fats and olive oil to help insulate and protect them against the wet and bitterly cold howling winds. Before sending out about 4,000 Numidian light cavalry across the frigid Trebia River and then south to the Roman military camps while the rest of Hannibal's army stayed behind warming themselves around the cooking fires at the Carthaginian encampment. And just as dawn began to break, amidst intermittent rain and sleet, 
the bulk of the Roman troops and their commanders were abruptly woken to the sound of blaring horns announcing the arrival of the Numidians that began swarming in to harass the lands around their fortifications, some few even venturing in close enough to cast their javelins over the wooden walls of the forts, throwing insulting taunts over as well, which drove Sempronius in a rage to do exactly what Hannibal wanted, playing right into his hands, wherein, despite his troops being ill-prepared for the cold and unfed, Sempronius nonetheless immediately ordered out his entire force of 4,000 cavalry out to give chase followed by the light infantry, 6,000 valites, and then the rest of his army, the various lines of Roman heavy infantry pouring out, in all, 40,000 Roman troops taking the field, with Sempronius rashly deciding to make this day his crowning achievement. And a quick side note here is that, since no accounts make mention of Scipio's participation in this engagement, it's more than likely that he remained in the Roman camp at the side of his wounded father, along with the skeleton crews of Roman troops that were kept back to protect the camps, totaling perhaps no more than 2,000. But that would have all been looking on from the walls and fortifications of their encampment as Sempronius led the Roman army off into the distance, rushing north in hot pursuit of the Numidians the Roman heavy horse and the Velites leading the chase, and the Numidians in between occasional bouts and exchanges of javelin fire, just teasing them with brief, chaotic skirmishes, careful to keep out of reach, drawing the Romans kilometers northwards, before darting west, back across the Trebia, in the direction of the Carthaginian camp, where Sempronius, unthinking as to the well-being of the Roman troops, totally unprepared for the cold, biting conditions, without hesitation, ordered his army to cross the icy cold river. That, perhaps, wasn't too bad for his 4,000 cavalrymen, since only their legs would have been submerged. But, for the bulk of the Roman force, 36,000 infantry, this was a crossing of absolute misery shocking their nervous systems and robbing them of their body heat as they crossed chest deep through the river, the deep cold of the frigid waters seeping into their bones, threatening hypothermia, that only worsened after ascending to the western bank, sodden with water, while the sleet and snow continued to fall down on them from above, worsening their plight, emerging in a truly wretched condition as described by Livy, who wrote that when the Romans got out upon the further bank, then indeed their bodies were all so benumbed that they could hardly hold their weapons, and at the same time they were fainting with fatigue, and as the day wore on, with hunger as well, since they were now already hours into their march, and beyond the river, at the urging of Sempronius, forced to march several kilometers further still, finally nearing Hannibal's camp, where they found the Carthaginian troops, by contrast, well-fed and rested, still warmed from their campfires, but now arrayed in battle formation. Causing Sempronius to begin organizing the Romans, 
with the 6,000 Velites in front of a long line of 30,000 heavy infantry and his 4,000 cavalry divided into two groups, protecting the flanks of the army. Sempronius himself positioned in the center front, directly overseeing the heavy infantry. And Hannibal responding by forming up the Carthaginian army with his Balearic slingers and other light infantry stationed in the front of 20,000 heavy infantry, a line that he thinned out to match the length of the opposing Roman heavy infantry, with the Carthaginian army also protected on its flanks by 9,000 cavalry, split into two wings, but also with each wing fronted by war elephants. And while none of the historical accounts specify where Hannibal was situated, his typical practice was to lead from the front, in the thick of battle, alongside and directly commanding the infantry, his steadying hand essential to inspire and keep them motivated, especially now, standing across from the terrifyingly famous Roman legions. With the Battle of the Trebia then being initiated by the Carthaginian general, commanding his light infantry forward, resulting in a brief missile exchange with the Velites. But already here arose a problem for the Romans, when the Velites were quickly driven back, since they had spent most of their javelins earlier while pursuing the Numidians, forcing Sempronius to order them to the rear of his army, intending to keep the Velites as a reserve force, and calling for his heavy infantry, led by the Hastati, to advance, getting peppered with Carthaginian missile fire as they approached. However, that was unable to push them back, causing only limited harm due to their large shields arrayed into strong frontal walls protecting them as the Hastati continued their forward march, resulting in Hannibal eventually recalling his light infantry skirmishers to be split into two groups that reformed behind the Carthaginian cavalry wings, leading to the point at which the two enormous lines of opposing heavy infantry violently connected on the battlefield, stabbing and hacking away at each other, at the same time with the accompanying cavalry wings on both sides surging forward as well. However, whereas the Roman lines, despite their wretched condition, maintained their shape and coherence, and as a testament to their skill and noted punching power, began seeing momentum, winning the center against the Carthaginians. It was both on the left and right wings that disaster struck, as the Roman cavalry was quickly and comprehensively overwhelmed by the superior number and quality of the Carthaginian horsemen, helped greatly by the fact that the Roman equites had been left exhausted by their earlier chase of the Numidians along with the unfamiliar appearance and smell of the Carthaginian war elephants, which was said to have panicked the Roman horses, wreaking havoc on their formations, causing the Roman cavalry to be quickly swept from the field, enabling Hannibal to conduct his trademark maneuver, the double envelopment, as both Carthaginian cavalry wings, led by the lumbering elephants, further supported by light infantry, proceeded to press inwards, viciously raking the flanks of the Roman heavy infantry. But 
finding Sempronius unable to send in his reserve force of Velites to help fend off these assaults. Due to the last trick up Hannibal's sleeve, that was now played with impeccable timing. Understanding that, going back to Barry Strauss's book, since Hannibal had spent nearly a month encamped in the Trebia River Valley before the battle, he was able to scout the region thoroughly, eyeing a steep embankment or gully to the south of where he planned to bring the Romans to battle. One large enough to hide an ambush force of 2,000 Carthaginian warriors, placed there the night prior, 1,000 infantry and 1,000 cavalry, under the command of Hannibal's younger brother Mago, that, when signaled, emerged from their hiding spot to assault the Romans from the rear. This final piece of battlefield brilliance, combined with the double envelopment, causing the Roman army, completely outclassed and outmaneuvered by Hannibal, to disintegrate and then fully collapse, routed, falling subject to a ruthless and unforgiving slaughter. With the only bright spot for the Romans being what happened in the center, where 10,000 Roman infantry led by Sempronius, managed to break clean through the Carthaginian line. However, by the time this group reorganized from the fight, Sempronius came to realize that the battle had been lost, with the rest of his army dissolved behind him. And although estimates vary, Carthaginian casualties, somewhere around four to 5,000, mostly Gallic infantry that fell during the Roman breakthrough at the center, Roman casualties, were shockingly high, up to 20,000 slain and 8,000 taken prisoner, almost three quarters of the army lost, with only about 12,000 and Sempronius managing to make their way back to the Roman encampments. Where Scipio and his father would have been shaken to the core to learn of the gravity of the result, hearing the harrowing recounts from the terrified survivors of what had happened during the engagement, piecing together how Hannibal had presided over such a one-sided affair, causing the already grim situation in the Po Valley to become notably bleak for the Romans in the days that followed the Battle of the Trebia, losing what was left of its tenuous hold and authority in the region, as almost all the Gallic tribes began flocking to Hannibal's side. And Sempronius, dismayed by what had transpired, suddenly changing his tune and demeanor, showing himself much more amendable to Scipio Sr.'s guidance, who, expecting attacks on Placentia and Cremona, wisely made sure to strengthen the garrisons protecting the settlements, while doing what they could to further strengthen the fortifications and walls around the colonies. Before, Sempronius, Scipio Sr., his son, and about 10,000 Roman soldiers in early to mid-January 217 BC were commanded by the Senate to abandon the region, marching 250 kilometers southeast to Ariminum, the modern city of Rimini, on the Adriatic coast. In order to protect this important colony that had been founded by the Roman Republic 50 years prior, used throughout that time, as a vital staging point for the legions to make their incursions into Cisalpine Gaul and Illyria. This command relayed by the Roman Senate one of prudence, 
because, and interestingly, despite Sempronius's attempts to deflect blame for the disastrous loss, saying that victory had been snatched out of his hands due to the weather, while not completely untrue, what he failed to include was his incompetent bungling of the situation. Nice try there, Sempronius. Since all the other incoming reports told the Senate an entirely different story, the true state of affairs, in that, although Placentia and Cremona remained unconquered, the Carthaginian army was not only left well intact, but it was becoming stronger by the day, as the Gallic tribes came streaming in to swell its ranks, with Hannibal now in full control of the central Po Valley. Proceeding to set up the Carthaginian winter camp in the land south to the colonies, somewhere in the area of the modern city of Bologna, at that time deep within the territory of the Boii, one of the most powerful Gallic tribes and among Hannibal's more fervent supporters. Wintering there from January through to April 217 BC, seeing his army almost double in size, from 33,000 to over 60,000 troops, while making further efforts to plant the seeds of his grand strategic plan, in the ultimate goal of getting the Roman Republic to relent and eventually negotiate, handing back the territories that they had taken from Carthage at the end of and in the years after the First Punic War, namely Sicily, Corsica, and Sardinia. A strategy that David Potter in his book, Origins of Empire, Rome from the Republic to Hadrian, lays out as built around weakening and isolating Rome politically, depriving it of its many allies, winning them over to Carthage's side, by consequence, eliminating Rome's access to these massive reserves of military manpower, and relegating its status to that of a nominal power on the Italian peninsula. A strategy that Patrick Hunt echoes, and emphasizes, was now starting to pay huge dividends in Cisalpine Gaul, structured on Hannibal's fundamental rally cry, that by this point, had driven most of the remaining Celts of North Italy to swing to his side in alliance, being that, unlike the Romans, who defeated the Celts, seized their land and resettled them with Roman colonies, he offered freedom. And, wary of overstaying his welcome, not wanting to be seen as an occupying force, Hannibal making it clear to his Gallic hosts that his intention, as soon as springtime arrived, was to march south to invade central Italy, which probably added to the swell of Gallic warriors entering Hannibal's service, since this promised opportunities for plunder and wealth. Also, with the Carthaginian commander doing the same thing he did after the Battle of Tachinus, while subjecting Roman prisoners to abysmal conditions, their exact fate unclear, some perhaps succumbing to starvation, it's also been put forward, sold into slavery, or forced into slavery under Gallic masters. In any event, a dismal fate. By contrast, Hannibal treated Roman allied captives, both Gauls and Italians, very well, treating their wounds, feeding them, and then letting them go, allowing them to return to their homes and spread the word about what Hannibal was offering freedom from living under the thumb of the Roman Republic, 
and the self-serving demands of its Senate. That back in Rome, though certainly taken aback, deeply troubled by the Carthaginian storm brewing in the north, it appears that they weren't yet fully dismayed, alluding to the Roman virtue of gravitas that we discussed in the earlier episodes, in that Rome had overcome much more dire setbacks in the past. Also, in part, rationalizing the reasons for the disaster at Trebia, squarely placing the blame on Sempronius's mismanagement of the legions, and not considering the possibility that a different tactical strategy might be necessary to deal with this formidable Carthaginian general. Nonetheless, the sobering realization that Hannibal was poised to descend into central Italy, this drove the Senate into a frenzy of action in early 217 BC to ensure that they had adequate military forces in field to deal with the impending Carthaginian invasion. And as mentioned back in part 1, although the annual citizen levy to fill the ranks of the legions would have typically taken place in a given year starting around the beginning of March, followed by a four-month training period at the Campus Martius, just outside of Rome. The press of the emergency at hand led the Senate to command rushing the conscription, completing this process much earlier than usual, enabling them to assemble eight new legions of 40,000 Roman and allied troops all in place to set forth from Rome by mid-March 217, before the spring thaw came to the Apennines, where Hannibal would need to cross over, and ready to go, right at the moment the new consuls for 217 BC took office. 25,000 under Gaius Flaminius Nepos, which would be sent to Arethium, today the city of Arezzo, in upper-central Italy about 80 kilometers southeast of modern Florence, with the remaining 15,000 placed under the command of Gnaeus Servilius Geminus and sent to Araminum, adding to the 10,000 that Scipio Sr. and Sempronius had earlier moved there, thereby giving Rome two sizable armies, 25,000 strong apiece, positioned at strategic choke points blocking what they believed to be the only feasible entryways into central Italy for such a large army, with the added benefit that the two Roman armies could also be quickly combined if needed, at one week's march distance from one another. While all this activity was going on, coinciding with the arrival of the 19-year-old Scipio back to Rome, returning with his father and Sempronius, before Flaminius and Servilius marched out to their respective posts, so probably towards late February or early March 217 BC, being that, as mentioned, the Ides of March marked the official transition date of consular powers, requiring the presence of the outgoing consuls in order to pass the torch of Imperium into the hands of the incoming consuls. And although Scipio hadn't been away from Rome for too long, just under a year, given what he had seen and experienced during his time in Cisalpine Gaul, undoubtedly learning a great deal during his time in field, now to a degree battle-tested as well, but also having seen nothing but loss, the legions of the Republic so readily and horrifically trounced by Hannibal, forcing their retreat, 
We can only imagine what lasting effects these must have had on his personality, though probably changed forever. And while, of course, we can't know for certain what Scipio would have observed upon his return, given the tremendous efforts behind the accelerated mobilization in early 217, we can confidently reason that he would have seen Rome industriously buzzing in a fury of urgent activity. Vendors and businesses such as armorers and leather workers, blacksmiths and weapon forges working day and night, while cartloads of resources, supplies and food rumbled through the streets, heading to the northwest just outside the city, to the field of Mars, where the newly assembled legions were being drilled and trained, making their final preparations to soon march out to their intended destinations and stop the Carthaginian menace. However, according to Livy, all of this happening under inauspicious overtones of foreboding, a growing sense of uncertainty, fear, and pessimism felt amongst the wider Roman populace, stemming from disturbing omens and signs, particularly following the Battle of the Trebia, that were increasingly being reported on from all over the Italian peninsula, interpreted as the Roman gods for some reason being displeased with the people of the Res Publica, falling out of favor. Now, back in part one of the series, we briefly touched on how deeply religious the people of the Roman Republic were. Like today, of course, some more than others. But fundamentally, how heavily this was linked to their culture, militaristic nature, and outlook on the world. Divine favor, believed to be an important factor to their ongoing success and dominance in the Italian peninsula. But what exactly did this religion look like at the time, and how did it work? Admittedly, it's a complicated web, but thankfully, Brian Campbell in his book, The Romans and Their World, has a nice, concise explanation on this, without going too far into the weeds. Let's start with the three main gods of the Roman pantheon of this era, Jupiter, Mars, and Quirinus. So first, Jupiter Optimus Maximus, Jupiter the best and the greatest, the king of the gods, who was central to the overall achievements and success of the Roman state. As was Mars, the god of war, also considered to be father to the Roman people. And then Quirinus, although an undoubtedly important deity at the time, later fell into obscurity, where he remains to date, unclear as to his role and function, though is believed by some historians to be possibly linked to Romulus, deified as the legendary founder and first king of Rome. With some of the important major goddesses including Juno, Jupiter's queen, associated with the protection of women at all stages of life, including for marriage and childbirth as well, and Ceres, the goddess of growth and fertility for both crops and people. These being just a few of the gods and goddesses, accompanied by a veritable army of other deities, major and minor, estimated to have numbered in the dozens, if not the hundreds, that were attached to pretty much every aspect of Roman life. 
denoting for ordinary Romans how integral and intertwined the will of the gods was to essentially all facets of their lives. Though for the Roman state, it was more so the major gods and goddesses that were focused on being kept appeased, necessitating favorable signs and omens from them before decisions were made on any state business, such as declaring war against another, agreeing to peace, or even conducting a battle. With the responsibility for gaining and maintaining this favor laying primarily with the Roman elite, the patricians, like that of Scipio for Mars, filling the priestly colleges of the major gods, tasked with performing the required religious rites, ceremonies, and sacrifices. But how did they know if they indeed had this divine favor? Well, this is where the augurs come in. A special class of priest, tasked with interpreting the supernatural, by observing the signs given in the natural world around them, things like unexpected weather patterns, but often sourcing these omens through animals, their behaviors and conduct, also by examining the entrails of sacrificial animals. With one of my favorite, and certainly among the most amusing examples of this, being the Roman Republic's sacred chickens, prophetic chickens that would be consulted on in matters of the utmost importance, gauging predictions on whatever question was being asked of them, by carefully watching their eating behavior, how vigorously they pecked away at the feed laid down in front of them. And one of the more famous stories involving the sacred chickens that was just too good not to include having occurred during the First Punic War, when the Roman admiral, Publius Claudius Pulcher, on the day of the naval battle of Drapana in 249 BC, growing frustrated that the chickens on board his ship refused to eat, giving him the green light to initiate battle. This prompted him to throw them overboard into the sea, saying, since they do not wish to eat, let them drink. As you can probably guess, Pulcher's forces going on to get comprehensively crushed in this sea battle. But with this event acting as an even more poignant lesson for the Romans, living on as a cautionary tale about the dangers of ignoring divine signs. Of course, from a modern perspective, all of this quite preposterous, laughable even, easily dismissed and understood through logical reasoning and scientific explanation. Yet, as Brian Campbell puts it, this should not detract from the fact that many Romans took seriously the possibility that the gods might intervene in human affairs and make their intentions known. Meaning that, while there was undoubtedly varying degrees of belief among the Romans, for the majority of people, trying to interpret what the gods thought of their mortal subjects was an important part of daily life. And what seems apparent is that, aligned with Scipio's return to Rome, the wider populace, so attuned to looking at the world around them for signs from the gods, much deeper than simply being a morale issue, considering the overwhelming defeats of the Roman forces at Tacinus and the Trebia, was an encroaching fear, speaking to something of an impending doom that began rooting itself among the people of Rome sparked by a series of ill omens, fueled by rumor and panic, 
that were claimed to have been witnessed in Rome and throughout its colonies. According to Livy, some of the examples cited including, in one of the markets of Rome, an ox that broke free from its stall, climbed to the third story of a nearby house, and threw itself down in the street below. A temple that was struck by lightning, a raven that flew into the temple to the goddess Juno and combusted into flame while perched on her couch. Countless apparitions and specters of warriors in shining armor seen throughout Italy. At a fort in Gaul, a wolf that snatched a guard's sword right out from its scabbard and ran off with it. And with some, claiming to have seen rivers and lakes turn red, becoming infused with blood followed by an event that Scipio himself may have been witness to, when on March 15, 217 BC, in the presence of Scipio Sr. and Sempronius, in a ceremony taking place on the grounds of the Forum, after the incoming consuls, Flaminius and Servilius, had been sworn into office, promising to uphold the laws and defend the Roman state, sealing this solemn oath by sacrificing a calf. Livy mentions that when it was Flaminius's turn to do so, as he was offering up the calf, it escaped after being struck, running off and resulting in many of the bystanders being splattered with its blood. The ensuing dismay and confusion over the event, causing many to regard it as an omen of great terror. Which, okay, not a great start to Flaminius's consulship but one that he apparently gruffly brushed aside as being of little consequence, indicative of his personality and character. In that, unlike Gnaeus Servilius Geminus, a seasoned and experienced general, a soldier's soldier, similar to that of Scipio Sr., Gaius Flaminius Nepos was reportedly cut from a similar cloth to that of Sempronius. Self-assured beyond reproach, arrogant, with a hungry eye for political gain, and completely impulsive and aggressive when it came to military matters, despite possessing limited experience commanding armies himself, and who would later prove to be a disastrous selection. But we'll get to this shortly, because in addition to this passing of the torch of consular powers, what would have also happened at around this time was a public reckoning or assessment of the performance of the outgoing consuls, Scipio Sr. and Sempronius. Not an official assessment process per se, but certainly a very public one, in order to bask in the glory of their accomplishments or try saving face if things had gone awry. Wherein, the magistrate in question, from the main speaking platform in the Roman Forum, might deliver an exit speech called a contio, or contiones for plural, essentially a recounting of their time in office, highlighting their successes or defending their actions. Since public scrutiny and maintaining a favorable public opinion was vital to one's ongoing relevance and political career in the res publica. And whereas Sempronius, for obvious reasons, was received in scathing disgrace, For Scipio Sr., although having lost at the Battle of Ticinus, his leadership and conduct, particularly 
the prudent defensive measures he undertook to keep the colonies of Placentia and Cremona from falling to the Carthaginians, these actions enabled him to retain the confidence of the Roman people and the Senate, that subsequently named him as proconsul, thereby extending the terms of his military command. With a quick side note here, that we can only really speculate on, but I strongly suspect that Scipio Sr., in his contio, would have highlighted the actions of his valiant son as well. Being that, much was made of Scipio's bravery and famous charge to save his father's life, thus adding to the glory of the Cornelii Scipione's family. While for Scipio himself, marketing him as a young man of promising social value, someone to look out for, essential for his future political career. Nonetheless, with Scipio Sr.'s command extended, and since he had by now recovered from the wound sustained at Tecinus, it was around here that he was given 20 ships and 8,000 additional troops, under the marching orders to reinforce the ongoing Roman military operations in northeastern Spain. That, you may recall from the last episode, Scipio Sr. had left in the capable hands of his brother, Scipio's uncle, Gnaeus Scipio Calvus, presiding over one of the few Roman bright spots of the Second Punic War up to that point in time, having destroyed a Carthaginian naval fleet and retaken the Roman allied city of Emporiae, the city located about 150 kilometers to the northeast of modern Barcelona and Scipio Sr. departing to join his brother there, sometime in the early spring of 217 BC. However, this time, not taking Scipio along with him on campaign, who stayed behind in Rome. Why? Well, in full transparency, we can't say for certain, given, as mentioned earlier, the trail on Scipio's early chronology is quite blurry. But it may have been because this is said to be around the time, according to some historians, that Scipio became married to Aemilia Tertia, the daughter of Lucius Aemilius Paulus, the future consul for 216 BC. In the beginning of a lifelong union that we can say very little about in terms of the relationship dynamics, but was a great match for Scipio in the way that she would later show herself to be a savvy political player in her own right, helping him throughout his career. Also coming from the prominent Emilia family, like the Cornelii Scipiones, one of the great patrician houses of the Republic. And whereas by today's standards, Scipio would have been at an exceedingly young age for marriage, since he was only 19 or 20 years old at this point in time, this fits squarely into what the Romans of the day considered the ideal age for nuptials, between the late teens to early 20s. Beyond this, unfortunately, we can only guess what Scipio would have been up to in Rome after his father sailed off to northeastern Spain. However, what can be reasoned with far more certainty is that while there, more specifically in late June 217, Whatever brief joy marked from this event in his life, alongside the tremendous Roman efforts to regain the initiative in the Second Punic War, was soon marred by news of another tragic defeat. With the whole of Rome left stunned and greatly dismayed, 
upon learning of the grave disaster that had befallen the forces of the Roman Republic at the Battle of Lake Trasimene, fought on June 21, 217 BC. As mentioned at the very beginning of this episode, initially driven by rumors swirling into the city, but soon confirmed by the formal pronouncement of the Praetor, Marcus Pomponius, the magistrate in charge of Rome's defenses, who, from the platform in the Forum, simply said, according to both Polybius and Livy, we have been defeated in a great battle. As a result of Hannibal, who had led his army into central Italy via a route thought impassable, before drawing Flaminius to rashly lead his army and plunge them headlong into a ruinous ambush, resulting not only in Flaminius being slain, but an estimated 90% of his entire 25,000 force, killed or captured by the Carthaginians. The looming sense of fear that had Rome in its grip, heightened by the chaos and the uncertainty unfolding in the city over the next days, as the few beleaguered survivors of the battle began arriving in small handfuls back to the city, causing the families of those that had marched off to war to surge en masse to the city's gates, clogging the entrances, desperately hoping to find their loved ones among the survivors, otherwise learn any news regarding the fate of their sons, husbands, and fathers. Sadly, with few happy reunions occurring. Somber scenes, best illustrated by Livy, who wrote, On the next day, and on several succeeding days, the city gates were thronged with crowds, waiting for some kinsman or for news of him. Surrounding anybody who came along, they plied him with questions, nor could they tear themselves away, especially from those they were acquainted with, until they had inquired into every detail. The details obtained from the wounded, exhausted, and terrified troops filtering back into the city, ominous, all speaking of a merciless butchery, inflicted upon them at the battle that had just days prior been fought at Lake Trasimene, today called Lake Trasimeno, located in the northwestern region of Umbria in central Italy, where masses of Carthaginian troops had appeared out of the thick morning fog to waylay the pursuing Roman force, attacking them across the length of their entire marching column. Horrific stories of the entire Roman force annihilated, thousands slaughtered, Roman corpses left littering the full extent of the narrow path following along the northern shore of Lake Trasimene, with some forced into the lake, drowning under the weight of their armor as they desperately attempted to flee the carnage, and others with only their heads above the water, surrendering, begging for mercy, only to be hacked down by the Carthaginians. And unlike the supposed earlier instances, reported by some Romans, of waters turning into blood, indicating the displeasure of the gods, the aftermath of the Battle of Lake Trasimene being a very real embodiment of those omens, as the gently lapping waves would have indeed been tinted with the blood of the fallen Roman troops, lying in the shallows and along the shoreline. This evisceration of yet another Roman army, 
sending shockwaves of fear throughout the city, quickly giving rise to panic among the inhabitants, with the realization that Hannibal, at the head of his 50,000-plus Carthaginian army, was now only a mere 150 kilometers distance from Rome. Moreover, with no Roman army standing in between him and their city, save the 10,000 soldiers garrisoning and protecting its walls, leading to a crescendo of dread-infused hysteria, with rumors of Hannibal at the gates increasingly being cried out by the beleaguered inhabitants, fully expecting the Carthaginians, at any moment, to appear over the horizon and set siege to Rome. In the next episode, we'll start by going slightly back in the sequence to where we last left Hannibal, camped in the Po Valley over the winter, until his departure in the spring of 217 BC, leading his army in yet another brilliant and arduous march through the Arno marshes to gain entrance into central Italy, before drawing the impetuous Gaius Flaminius Nepos and his legions into a ruinous ambush at the Battle of Lake Trasimene. A disaster that triggered Rome to go to the desperate extent of nominating a military dictator to take charge of the war effort in Italy, under Quintus Fabius Maximus, who devised the Fabian strategy, aimed at wearing the Carthaginians down through attrition while avoiding full-on pitched battles with Hannibal, who, surprisingly, after Trasimene, for reasons we'll discuss, didn't end up besieging Rome. Instead, marching his forces further south down the peninsula, looking to dislodge the Republic's southern Italian allies, leading to 216 BC, when the Romans, according to the tenets of its warrior culture, soon grew tired of the Fabian strategy, pushing it aside in place of a fervor to field the largest army ever assembled, 86,000 Roman troops, determined to deliver a knockout blow to Hannibal. A fervor that Scipio would also be swept up into, as the youngest military tribune within the ranks of the legions, and present for one of Rome's darkest days in its long history, on August 2nd, 216, at the Battle of Cannae, wherein Hannibal would again put on a tactical masterpiece, leading his army in a scintillating victory from which only 14,000 Roman troops would escape. A battle of unimaginable carnage, where some 50,000 Romans would be slain and 20,000 taken prisoner, in one of the most brutal and lopsided victories, not just of antiquity, but of all time. Yet, in the immediate aftermath of that unmitigated disaster, the 20-year-old Scipio arising to lead approximately 10,000 Roman troops out of the Carthaginian noose, leading them to safety. But shortly afterwards, during a meeting among the despairing survivors, speaking of desertion, a meeting that Scipio would storm into and, by the point of his sword, force all present to swear that they would never abandon Rome. This and more to come in the next episode of the Warlords of History podcast. And in the meanwhile, 
If you want to support the podcast, there are many ways to help. You can tell your family and friends about the show. Please rate, review, and subscribe on whichever platform you happen to access the show on. You can follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. And lastly, you can head on over to the show's website, warlordsofhistory.com, where on the support section of the site, you can find the show's Patreon or PayPal links in the event you want to contribute to the podcast directly. But beyond this, where I'll include some additional info, like images and maps pertaining to this episode for your viewing pleasure. And where you can also reach out to me with any thoughts, questions, or suggestions. I would love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Theme music from Audionautics.com